You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this morning from the prophet of Amos, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles first to 2 Kings 14. Our first reading this morning will give us a sense of the historical context to which Amos brings the Word of God. And our second reading will bring something of the theological or the thematic context with which Amos speaks the Word of God. So first then, 2 Kings chapter 14, and we'll begin at verse 23 and read through verse 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did and his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Yudi, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, succeeded him as king. And then I'd invite you to turn to the gospel according to John, chapter 10, beginning at verse 11, where the Lord Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Our text this morning is from the prophecy of Amos in the Old Testament. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Isaiah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, The book of Amos, the prophecies of Amos, is not what anyone would call a happy book. 
By no means. Rather, it's a book of doom, gloom, and judgment. Prophecies of judgment and calls to repentance are what form the core of this book. Now, for some of you, you think that this is just great. You think that there's just not enough good, old-fashioned fire and brimstone preaching anymore. And the idea of working through a book like Amos, which is what we hope to do, the idea of working through this kind of book with judgment is a good idea. It's great. We need more of that. Now, for others of you, you're cringing right now. You think, oh no, here we go. Another sermon on judgment. You think there's altogether too much negativity out there. You feel like you're always getting pounded by it. And sitting in church on Sunday morning is the last place where you need to hear some more. So who's right? Well, I think neither. On one hand, we should not shy away from a book whose main contents is judgment. Especially a book which has a lot of parallels, as we'll see, with our own time. With the culture and the place that we live today. At the same time, we should never glory in this judgment. should never think as though that's just the greatest thing. That God would bring His judgment on sinners. As though everyone else out there deserves God's judgment, except for us. Rather, brothers and sisters, we need to see where we stand with respect to Amos's prophecies. We need to see that we stand on both sides. On the one hand, it's a word of warning and rebuke to us. It's a call out of our complacency and out of our apathy. But at the same time, we, as prophets of the Lord, we carry that office of prophets by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we bring His standards to bear on our times as well, on our community and on our society. And ultimately, through both of these means, we're bringing a message of hope. Because wherever there is repentance and faith, brothers and sisters, there is hope. And so I preach to you the Word of God from these first two verses in the prophecy of Amos under this theme that in the midst of complacency and apathy, the covenant God roars. In the midst of complacency and apathy, the covenant God roars. We'll hear first the roar of the lion. And then secondly, the roar of the prophet Amos. And then thirdly, the roar of the shepherd who cares for his sheep. So first then, the roar of the lion. What we need to understand in order to to understand about this roar of the lion, we need to know what's the context in which Amos brings his prophecy, because that's very important in understanding what he says. Well, we're told at the beginning of this book about the time and the place that these prophecies were given. It was given during the reign of Isaiah in Judah and during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. 
And these prophecies were given mainly to the people of Israel, although they were also given to Judah and even the surrounding nations as well. But primarily, it was to God's people in the nation of Israel. So what was life like in Israel under Jeroboam II? Well, first of all, it was a time of material prosperity. Material prosperity. King Jeroboam II had conquered, had achieved some great military success. And he had extended the borders of Israel all the way to where they had stood under the great reign of King David. And when he had conquered these new lands, it gave the Israelites new possibilities in terms of trade and development and in terms of business. You see, that conquered land was given to wealthy Israelites, and so there became in Israel a new land-owning class, which had a lot of prosperity, a lot of wealth, a lot of business dealings. And the tributes and the trade from that newly conquered land would have helped to fill the coffers of King Jeroboam II and his officials and all those whom he would have liked to give any of that money. The prophet Amos makes reference to this prosperity frequently throughout his prophecies. You can think, for example, of chapter 3, verse 15, where he mentions that the people in Israel have winter houses as long as summer houses, and that their houses are adorned with ivory and other beautiful things. So it's a time of great material prosperity. It was also a time of cultural renaissance, of, of cultural renewal, these people had money and they liked to throw it around and, and support the arts. They liked to, show, to throw lavish parties with wine and choice foods. And they promoted music. They promoted the arts. They liked to play the, art, the harp like David, we read in chapter 6. And they were even into improvising tunes. It was also a time of cultural renaissance. But thirdly, It was a time of religious decline, of religious decline. Even with all these good things that the people had received from the hand of the Lord, they seemed to have taken it all for granted. And theirs was a real time of religious decline. And they were led, of course, by their king, King Jeroboam II. We read in 2 Kings 14, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, And he did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Also, we read frequently throughout this book that there was injustice against the poor and people oppressed those who were downtrodden. So the rich got richer and the poor got poorer in a miserable life. And theirs was also a time of empty worship. They worshipped, they went through the motions, They did religious things, but they didn't have the heart for it. Finally, theirs was a time of false worship. We know about those false gods, the calves, set up in Dan and Bethel, where the people went to worship. They did not serve the true God there, they served an idol. So it was a time of false worship. In their time of peace and prosperity, the people had grown complacent and apathetic towards the Lord in their devotion to Him. They had fallen asleep with regard to their service of the Lord. They weren't looking at the things above anymore. They were only focused and way too much 
on the things below. They were materialists. They measured everything in terms of how much good and wealth they had. Money and goods equaled prosperity and blessing. That's the formula for a materialist. Well, we live in a time of great prosperity and peace, don't we? Of wealth. There are, in fact, many parallels between Amos's time and our time. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, as we hear the roar of the lion in the book of Amos, are we materialists? Do we measure everything in terms of dollars and cents? Has this question ever popped into your mind? as it has in mine, if only I had a little more money, then I would be more happy. Then I'd be more content. Then things would be better. In line with the theme for the home visits this year, where are your eyes? Are they on the things above? Or are they firmly fixed on the things below? While the people were materialists, They were also formalists. We shouldn't think that these Israelites were not religious. They were very religious. They they brought sacrifices every morning. We read that in chapter 5. They gave thank offerings and free will offerings. Now the thing about those offerings is no one had to bring those. The Israelites weren't commanded. They would only give it as a response to the Lord. So these people were bringing even those offerings that were not prescribed for them. But they did the deed without the heart of worship. They did the deed without real loving action. Shown in justice. Shown in helping out the poor and the needy. Shown in showing love to the oppressed. Are we formalists as well? Does the extent of our religious devotion involve coming to church and even giving our tithe? What if we were to measure ourselves not only by our doctrine, or not only by what we give to the church, but by how much we care for the poor? How much time and energy and effort we invest in helping out the oppressed? How much we think about the injustices that are done in our land and resolve to do something about it? I recently heard of a pastor in a conservative reformed church in St. Louis who, after his church began to show love for the poor in their city and to generally show love to their community in all sorts of outreach activities, this pastor was asked by a prominent politician, I thought your church was conservative. Do you guys believe the Bible? Because by all the things that you're doing for the poor and for the oppressed and for our community, it looks like you actually belong to a liberal church. Well, shame on us if that's the testimony that we give as a conservative, Bible-believing church. But formalism is a deadly disease. And so the people of Amos' time were materialists and formalists. Basically, they had forgotten about the Lord. They had fallen asleep in their devotion to Him. And they thought the Lord had fallen asleep as well. But the Lord does not sleep. Sometimes we think that because we or 
because it seems to us everyone else is apathetic, has fallen asleep with regard to the Lord, sometimes we think that then the Lord must be sleeping too. Where is he? But the Lord does not sleep. This lion does not sleep. He never sleeps. At times, the Lord's wakefulness is comfort for God's people. As in Psalm 121, He who watches over Israel will not slumber or sleep. But this is not the case here, beloved. Rather, the Lord's watchfulness and sleeplessness here is like Amos says in chapter 3, verse 8, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? His roar is a roar of judgment. That's what we read about in verse 2 in our text. It says there, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The sense that you get from that word roars is that of a lion just about to attack. It's a roar of, of anticipation of that attack. It's a roar that's meant to frighten to paralyze, to strike fear into the heart of the person who's about to be attacked. And judgment is also indicated in the second part of verse 2, where it says that the pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Mount Carmel withers. This is speaking about drought. And drought is characteristic of God's covenant judgment against His people. In fact, it's so common that you could really say that drought means judgment. Drought stands in for God's curse and all the other things that that involves. You might recall Deuteronomy 28, where Moses told the Israelites about the curses they could expect if they disobeyed the Lord. And one of the most clear signs of his displeasure with his people was drought. And so what Amos is saying here is really that the whole land is going to be judged from the lowest valleys where the shepherds graze their flocks, all the way to the top of the highest mountain, Mount Carmel, God's judgment is going to be realized. Why? Well, because our God is a just God. He is a just God. He must punish sin. He can't tolerate wickedness. It goes against everything. It goes against His holiness, His glory, His honor, Injustice goes against his being. Materialism incites his anger. Covenant disobedience stirs up his wrath because he's a just God. It did in the time of Moses. And it does today, too. Has God changed that he no longer looks at weak-willed worship and becomes angry? Does he no longer roar when God's people do not maintain justice? Does he no longer care when our world destroys the lives of babies, of young children, of seniors, of handicapped people, of the poor and oppressed? Does God not care? Of course he cares. He's a just God, and he must and he will punish wickedness. And he's also, brothers and sisters, a jealous God. A jealous God. Here we see the heart of our Lord. That He has chosen a people for His own and He's not content to let us just stray off on our own way. He wants us back. He wants true and pure and loving worship. And therefore, He sends the drought. 
And He sends the hardship. And He sends the trials to bring us back to Himself. So the Lord is just and He's jealous, but He's also merciful. At the same time, He's merciful. And in His mercy to His people Israel, He sent them a prophet, the prophet Amos. That brings us then to our second point, the roar of the prophet. When the Lord roars, He often does it through His servant, the prophet. When He roared to the apathetic and complacent people of Israel, He did it through Amos, a shepherd from the city, from the town really, of Tekoa. You see, Amos was a man of humble means from Tekoa, which is a town, small town, south of Jerusalem in the region of Judah. Now, you need to remember that this was the time of the divided monarchy. So Israel was an entity in itself, and so was Judah. They were separate places with different kings. And so Amos was living, when he was living in Tekoa, he was living in the region governed by Isaiah, the king of Judah. But although Amos's prophecy is far-reaching, he prophesies to the countries around Israel and to Judah, most of all his words are directed to Israel, the country that he didn't even live in. Notice what it says in verse 1. It's what he saw concerning Israel. It seems that Israel was so wicked and so far gone that the Lord couldn't even raise up a prophet from among them. He had to go to a different place to call his prophet. Well, Amos was a man of humble means, a shepherd, a flock herder. But he was not a man of humble words. The Lord uses the person of his prophet to deliver his word. Some prophets were highly educated and they were able to wax eloquent as they addressed God's people. They did it in in high and lofty terms. Think of the prophet Isaiah, born to nobility in Israel, educated, and a very eloquent writer. That was not Amos. Amos was a farmer. Amos was very poetic. He used all sorts of word pictures and associations and poetic devices. But Amos was not eloquent. He was blunt. He got right to the point. Just read this, these first words from him. He doesn't mince any words. And you can understand this too, can't you? He's a farmer. He's a practical man. He's a man who sees, sees things clearly and he says it like it is. He's rough around the edges and he's tough. He doesn't back down from anyone. He wasn't afraid to offend people if that is what was necessary. Think of what he says to the woman of Israel in chapter 5, verse 1. He says to the rich woman in Israel, Hear this, you cows of Bashan. He calls them cows. Or when he comes before Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Now Bethel was the center of worship in Israel, and Amaziah was the high priest of that place, so he held a place of prominence in Israel. He was a very important person. And so he comes to Amos after hearing some of his prophecies and he says, get out of here, you seer. Go back to your own country. We don't want you here. We don't want your prophecies and we don't want your doom and gloom and judgment. You're not welcome here. So how does Amos respond to this great man, this priest of Bethel, 
this man with power, with status, with clout. He says, oh yeah? This is God's word to you. Your wife's going to become a prostitute. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. And you're going to be exiled with Israel and the whole nation with you. Amos doesn't back down. He speaks the truth. The Lord uses that gruff, tough, direct personality of Amos to great effect in these prophecies. And brothers and sisters, the Lord also uses us, as we're called to confess his name in the world, he also uses us with our occupation, our temperament, to do his work today. We're not all the same. We don't have to be. Some people have that ability to speak fine words very well and to, in a very non-judgmental way, say things just right to have great effect on others. But others don't see the need for that, nor do they have the time. They're blunt, and they tell it like it is. Well, if you're like that, then there is certainly room for you in God's world and in God's church. Especially, I think, in our culture, where nice is seen as the ultimate virtue, and we would never want to offend anyone else. I heard of a man recently who was telling his barber about the Lord Jesus. And he was going on and on, until finally the barber cut in and said, well, what do I need Jesus for? Are you telling me that I'm going to hell if I don't have Jesus? And this man replied, no, I don't think you're going to hell without Jesus. So then the barber said, well, then why do I need him? In a culture of nice, we need more Amoses who will speak the truth, who will face up to the realities because they are realities of sin and judgment in the world, and who will deliver that message both to Christians and to non-Christians alike, because it's God's message to the whole world. But your bluntness and your straightforwardness has to be tempered by a certain regard. Amos didn't just fire off his opinions like a loose cannon. He delivered his message in love for God's people, in love for his fellow man, in love for the Israelites. He tells the truth, ultimately, Because the truth is what saves. The truth is good. He speaks of sin and judgment, not so that the people will be cast into judgment, but so that they'll be shaken out of their apathy and complacency. And so that they'll turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. When Amos speaks to God's people, he speaks as a shepherd. He speaks as a shepherd. That brings us then to the last point, the roar of the shepherd. Amos, we read in the beginning, is a shepherd from Tekoa. He cares for the sheep. We read in John 10 that Jesus spoke about the bad shepherd who sees the wolf coming and then he runs away. It's the same with the lion. The good shepherd doesn't run away when he sees the lion, when he hears that roar of judgment from the lion. Amos didn't run away and hide. Neither did he fight the lion, but rather he warned the people about that judgment. 
He warned them that the lion was roaring. He hadn't fallen asleep. He was roaring and judgment was impending. He was about to strike. Amos loved God's people so much that he even tried to intervene for them. We read in chapter 7 and 8 that Amos comes before the Lord and asks him to relent from his terrible wrath. Really, when Amos delivers these messages of judgment and calls to repentance, he's doing it on behalf of God. He's doing it as an under-shepherd for the great shepherd of Israel. You see, the covenant God, the covenant God is the one who loves his people, who chose them as his own, and who becomes angry when they stray, and who therefore sends his prophet Amos to call them back to him. Amos is a shepherd, and he points us toward the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, points us to him. Amos spoke of judgment coming at the hand of the Lord, while our Lord also spoke words of terrible judgment, and he told us that he was the judge. Amos called the people of Israel to repent and to turn to God. Our Lord Jesus said, repent For the kingdom of God is near. And he told people to turn to himself. But our Lord Jesus did more than Amos could ever do. Amos heard the lion roar, but could only warn the people about the coming judgment. Our Lord Jesus heard the lion roar, and like a good shepherd, he protected his flock. He laid down his life for his people, he laid down his life for his sheep. He went like a lamb to the slaughter, and he bore the furious covenant judgment and wrath of the lion, God the Father in heaven. And he did that for us. Do you see how we stand on both sides of these prophecies of Amos? On the one hand, we're called to speak God's word to this world, to our community, to our society, to our province, to our country. We're called to speak the word of judgment of God, of His anger against sin. We're called to confront sin and to expose it for what it is. And we're also called to call on each other to repent and to turn to God in faith. But on the other hand, we ourselves stand convicted. We forget the Lord. We go through the motions of worship without our heart being in it. We don't show Christ's love to the poor and the oppressed. We ourselves need to repent. And so, brothers and sisters, we have to look to Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, the one who laid down His life for the sheep. He gave up His life under the judgment of God for our sake. And so we must repent daily and turn to Him. And we must call this sinful world, this unjust world, to their knees before the Great Shepherd to find their righteousness and their life in Him alone. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.ca.
www.thepeopleofgod.org.